This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham join me to talk about federal politics. Then, Barrister Julian Burnside QC joined me to talk about his speech, Threats to Multiculturalism in Australia. Julian will be delivering this speech for the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria 7th Annual Walter Lippmann Memorial Oration. Then... Don Rothwell, Professor of International Law at the Australian National University College of Law, joined me to talk about Japan's current attempts to reverse the moratorium on commercial whaling. And finally, I spoke with Fiona Patton, MLC. Fiona is a member of the Upper House in Victoria. She is the founder of Reason Party and her new book, Sex, Drugs and the Electoral Role, was the topic of discussion. You are tuned in, as I said, to Uncommon Sense. This is Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. And I have with me Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And he joins me to talk about federal politics and uh, returns from his foray into the Brisbane life that is the water side. Hello, Ben. <laughs> hey, Amy. Did you get any good weather? Uh, it was a little bit rainy and humid and overcast for a while there, but nice. um, the last uh, couple of days I was up there was beautiful. Um, I was up for the Big Sound Conference, the music industry conference up there, and uh, it was great. Saw a lot of really good music, so yeah. plenty of up-and-coming tunes to, to check out. Can you share a hot tip? Uh, absolutely, a few hot tips. Um, yep. Wax Chattels uh, and the Beths from New Zealand. A um, couple of really interesting up-and-coming acts. Uh, the Beths sound like a kind of flying nun band. Mm. Wax Chattels is kind of hardcore, um, I guess, um, very math-rocky. Um, really enjoyed Psychedelic Porn Crumpets, which are a hair metal outfit. Which get the award for best name yeah, so ever. Piquantly named uh, Wax. Those guys, the Psychedelic <laughs> Porn Crumpets. Um, there was a stack of electronica, a stack of female singer-songwriters, um, you know, definitely still some good rock and roll as well. Mm. So, yeah, all in all, very rewarding. Success. Well, today it is um, a beautifully sunny day of 24 degrees, which I thought was just right for my show today. I'm feeling really sunny about it. But, Ben, are we feeling sunny about federal politics it's hard to feel sunny about federal politics. Uh, it's very hard to feel optimistic or happy about the current state of shenanigans in Canberra. Uh, so, yes, federal parliament returned from a hiatus uh, yesterday um, and the, the parliament returned and Prime Minister Scott Morrison had his first sitting as the Prime Minister in the House of Representatives and had to answer a few questions from the Labor Party, including... Why is he the Prime Minister? Mm. Um, and he uh, kind of struggled with that one, actually. He didn't really have a good answer, which is... Has anyone come up with a good answer? It's a, it's a hard one because, you know, ultimately the true answer, obviously, is that he's Prime Minister because the Liberal Party got rid of Malcolm Turnbull and because of its own internal divisions. Now, um, I, I suppose you could say that he was, in a sense, he was a little bit honest where he said, you know, I'm Prime Minister because the Liberal Party may be Prime Minister. Mm. So... In that respect, I think that's fair enough for him to say that. I mean, what else could he say? But it certainly points to the instability and the division of recent weeks. Well, they can't really say Tony Abbott and his, you know, backroom bandits didn't like Malcolm Turnbull anymore and Peter Dutton joined on and, 
You know, like what what are you going to do? Go into all of your dirty laundry in question time? Well, I mean, you would think though that there would be some attempt uh, to come up with well some, to spin it <laughs> to some, some attempt <laughs> to come up with a plausible reason for I know. why the government decided to change leaders. You I know. was shocked though that once they'd done it and the the initial press conference from ScoMo and Frydenberg, they came out together as a team and it looked like they hadn't come up with any talking points that were vaguely convincing or real. Like and and it looked like it had been this haphazard scrawl on the back of a note paper for 10 minutes and then they're like out there because the, the nothing has really changed in terms of the messaging that they've been using about this whole issue. No, no, they've handled it really rather badly and that's reflected in the polls. We've had a big run of polls in, the, in recent weeks. Now, as you know, Amy, I don't like to get into too much poll commentary and horse race journalism, but um, there's no doubt that this has been a big hit to the popularity mm. of the coalition government. You know, they've suffered a massive decline in their primary vote as opinion pollsters have measured. And so, you know, Morrison's now starting from a long way behind. And uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for the government really to, to get back on its feet after this, not just because of the internal bloodletting, which is still going on, by the way. There's still people yeah. leaking against Peter Dutton. Peter Dutton is clearly leaking against Scott Morrison. You know, there's an awful lot of internal unrest still going on behind the scenes, as you'd expect after the events of a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but also Morrison faces a significant challenge because he's not that well known. Uh, he was a reasonably low-profile treasurer, mm. uh, you know, particularly under Turnbull, who tended to suck up a lot of the media attention as Prime Minister, naturally, but also because of his own undoubted media skills. Uh, and outside of his home state of New South Wales, and in particular his home city of Sydney, Morrison is actually just not that well known by ordinary Australians. You know, when I was in Brisbane last week, I was asking people, what do you think about Scott Morrison? And I was struck by the number of people who said simply, who? <laughs> who is that? You know, um, and I think people have turned off from politics. They're yeah. fundamentally disengaged. Um, the replacement of sitting prime ministers has really disgusted a lot of people with our democratic process. Trust is eroding in our parliamentary institutions. And so Morrison's got a really big challenge for himself. Mm, he really does. What strikes me is that um, he used to constantly bring out graphs and props at his press conferences for journalists to explain certain budget elements or new reforms, which doesn't really strike me as something that's all that engaging with the Australian public. Look, I think he's a pretty savvy politician and he, I think he's a, a, a clever media operator, but the Office of Prime Minister demands a greater dignity, a certain amount of gravitas. Uh, some people rise to the occasion and some, some people, people wear don't. Cubras and some people wear caps in the outback. That's right, and some people eat <laughs> onions. Uh, yep. and, and so, you know, Morrison has, I think, all sorts of work cut out for himself simply to introduce himself to voters because a mm. lot of voters don't really know what he stands for. Uh, and over the last week, as he's tried to kind of make himself known on certain issues and to stake out positions, you know, it's become clear that he's, he's um, going to be a reasonably socially conservative prime minister, that he's talked a lot about his religious beliefs. Um, he's talked a bit about how he is uh, disgusted by... Uh, sex education in New South Wales primary schools and, and high schools. Um, that went over pretty badly, mm. I think, with a lot of people. Um, and, and I think 
Well, people probably don't understand just how right-wing Morrison is. Uh, he is nominally from the right of the party, although he's been able to sort of stake a position as midway between the moderates and the right-wing of the party, which is one of the reasons why he is Prime Minister. But that still puts him far to the right of the uh, the ordinary voter in the electorate, certainly in swinging electorates. So, um, you know, he's going to be governing from a position really of... of of weakness, and, and mm. I think that's going to make it very difficult for his government. And that's even before we get to upcoming political tests like the Wentworth by-election that's coming up in a few weeks' time. Yes. Well, we saw um, the flow-on effects, partial flow-on effects in the Wagga Wagga by-election that happened in New South Wales. Of course, it wasn't all the federal election because the New South Wales government has a huge amount of their own issues. Yes, um, I, I'd be... Well, okay, so let's just... But it is a massive swing against them and they've lost that seat, which they've held for 60 years. So it is a significant development. Yes, it is significant development. So that's right. A, a by-election in the seat of Wagga in regional New South Wales. Now, why was this uh, occurring? It was brought on because the sitting member had resigned over a corruption scandal. So that's a, you know, that's a bad place to start with as a sitting government. Uh, the Berejiklian Liberal government is reasonably unpopular. You know, it's it's pretty much level in the polls with the New South Wales Labor opposition. Um, so to lose this seat and a massive swing, something like a 25% swing against the sitting party, uh, I think shows that the the Berejiklian government's in a bit of trouble up mm. there in New South Wales. I don't know if there are any federal implications necessarily. Certainly it seemed like local issues were primarily at play and a strong local independent candidate looks like he, he will be the winner, the local country doctor. Mm. Um, and I think interesting. That that probably because he's an outsider he's not a uh, you know inside the machine that is politics yes he's been compared to Kathy McGowan um, in um, in regional Victoria um, of course who was able to, to take the seat of uh, Indi, I believe it yes, is. Yes, Indi. Uh, Indi up in um, the high country of Victoria. Again, you know, a good clean skin local candidate with good local recognition. Well, seen a as huge grassroots campaign. Huge grassroots campaign. Massive. And I, I believe this fellow in Wagga also ran a good campaign and obviously seen as not a politician, certainly not mm. from one of the major parties. So um, we might see more of that as people become more and more cheesed off with the major parties. I think that is an excellent uh, trend to keep an eye on. Um, we did, speaking of new or slash returning politicians, see the return of Larissa Waters to the Senate once again. Um, and she's been out, you know, on Q&A a couple of weeks ago trying to rebuild her profile, seeing as she was one of the many politicians who got caught up in the dual citizenship issue. That's right. Uh, Queensland Greens Senator Larissa Waters uh, returns to the Senate uh, she'd been knocked out as one of the Section 44 victims, one of the many Section 44 mm. victims. Uh, she resigned from the Senate, I think, um, quite honourably, you know, I think, as it turns out. She was, I think, the second after Scott Ludlam to be ruled out. And yep. unlike many of the other politicians, subsequently she chose to simply resign rather than to uh, go through the process of having the High Court assess her eligibility um, and um, the Greens appointed someone, uh, Andrew Bartlett, to take her place for a period of time and then she is now returning to the Senate to take his Senate position um, because the way the Senate works is, of course, you vote 
most people vote for a party um, above the line and the parties have the ability to replace candidates um, should should one of them uh, become ineligible in this way. Yeah. Bartlett returns to the lower house. He's going to run for the federal seat of Brisbane again, I understand. Mm. So he will have a go. Do you think he has a chance, Ben, given you are from that region originally? Uh, well, you know, I don't live in Brisbane anymore. Um, the Greens have had a bit of success in the last state election up there. They won a seat in the lower house uh, for the first time. Mm. Um, so that was that was very successful for them. Um, whether Bartlett can win the seat of Brisbane, I think that's going to be a very much an uphill struggle for him. I think that's going to be quite difficult. Um, but he certainly polls pretty well. I think in the last federal election he polled something like 20%. So he That's does decent. all right. Yeah. Of course, he has a, a quite a high political profile as a former leader of the Australian Democrats. He's been prominent in the lock-the-gate environment movement. So he's a good candidate, uh, but very, very difficult for the Greens in Queensland generally. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Well, as we can see by the rise of One Nation at certain points within the electoral cycle depending on what is happening. Now, I would like to mention um, and discuss something that I didn't get to talk about last week, which is the ongoing uh, talks about what type of culture the Liberal Party has that means that a really talented woman like Julia Banks has decided to resign and not recontest a seat, the only seat of which the Liberals won from Labor uh, in that last election, it's the seat of Chisholm I'm talking about. And uh, we saw Kelly O'Dwyer on ABC 7.30 saying um, that Julia Banks is no petal. She's no shrinking violet. She wouldn't be doing this unless she had pretty good reason to. Um, and we've also seen uh, Julie Bishop now move to the back bench um, as she has stepped down from the foreign minister role. Some people were thinking she may not uh, return to politics and not recontest her seat, but it looks like she will. That's right. Julie Bishop will recontest her seat in Western Australia in the lower house. Um, and really, they need her to, mm. considering how much trouble they're in um, in the polls. Um, Julia Banks is the member for Chisholm in Melbourne's leafy middle and outer east. Um, Anna Burke was the right. previous member there. Held by the Labor member Anna Burke, former Speaker of the House of Representatives for many years, nearly 20 years, she'd built up a very strong personal vote. Mm. But underneath that, the seat had become steadily wealthier and more conservative. So Banks had won it in 2016 with a good pretty strong marginal seat campaign as Burke had retired yeah. and, and really uh, Banks was in there for life. I mean, that was, I think she was going to be able to um, build on that success and really, you know, um, mark herself out in that seat. She, she had a good chance of retaining that seat for the long term. Mm. Um, this throws that seat way back into contention now. So it becomes very much a marginal seat once again without a sitting member there to, to recontest it. And it is interesting to see why Banks has resigned. She's basically blamed the bullying within the lab, with the Liberal Party um, in the lead up to the leadership spill um, for it. So she claims that she was pressured by a number of her Liberal colleagues and even threatened with having her pre-selection removed for the seat. And she didn't take kindly to that. Uh, she's a, a pretty distinguished businesswoman um, coming to politics with a, a strong career in business before this. So um, for her to say these things publicly 
uh, very, very damaging for the Liberal Party, very damaging indeed. Well, they're continually coming out though. I mean, this this issue hasn't been resolved and Scott Morrison says he will defer to the experts, aka Kelly O'Dwyer, who is still the Minister for Women um, on this issue. It'll be interesting to see exactly what the Liberal Party come up with in terms of some kind of uh, solution, at least to the public image that they've now created, which is, or actually added to, because it already existed, which is the Liberal Party is hostile to women. It doesn't pre-select women in safe, winnable seats, and that when these seats do come up, you often see internal party members, such as members from the IPA, such as uh, other in like strongly solidified party people getting up instead of these other women. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't think it's just an image problem, Amy. I think it's, no, it's a, prob- a real problem. It's a real problem. But they're not even dealing with the surface issue. Like they haven't wanted to deal with the underlying issue for years. I've constantly had to be um, talking about this issue when I was promoting women in leadership, saying why don't they have real targets rather than aspirational targets that they're never going to achieve? The Labor Party has quotas and affirmative action and even then sometimes they don't, you know, follow their own rules. What is the Liberal Party actually going to do about this? Uh, well, very little, I, I think, unfortunately, Amy. If you look at uh, history or even recent history, uh, the Liberal Party has been highly reluctant to embrace quotas. It's been it's really refused to admit that there's a problem with women within the Liberal Party, either in terms of representation or gender balance or really even in terms of um, accepting any of the kind of ideas of feminism. You know, the Liberal Party is viscerally opposed to feminism in many respects. Um, and this ramifies through the party, I think, in many important ways. So, yeah, absolutely, the Liberal Party um, does not have a system in place to put women into winnable seats. Um, the women that it does have in the party seem to be relegated to backbench roles or minor roles. Uh, with the departure of Bishop from the Cabinet, it's lost its most experienced female leader. Uh, and really probably the woman who should really be the Prime Minister, at least in terms of background and qualifications. Um, it is encouraging for the party, of course, that Bishop's decided to stick around. Um, she might make, she might well become the opposition leader should the government lose. But, um, yeah, it, it's a devastating blow when you have candidates of the calibre of Julia Banks pull the plug. Uh, and it will be very interesting to see who they nominate for the Wentworth by-election. Wentworth obviously being a winnable seat, Turnbull's old seat. Should be. You know, you would think that they, sh- they should be able to find um, an excellent candidate. You know, mm. um, the ideal candidate, I suggest, would be... Uh, uh, you know, a distinguished professional woman uh, from one of the local branches. Uh, but whether that happens, I think we'll we'll, we'll have to wait have and to see. Wait. Yeah, Christine Forster, which is uh, Tony Abbott's sister, looks like she may not keep um, stay in the run for that. No, she's withdrawn, I believe. Yeah, yeah. She didn't want it to look like uh, she was there to cause internal divisions. Right. Well, uh, I think that horse is bolted, uh, but. <laughs> Uh, also well, she's a bit more <laughs> self-aware than her brother. I think uh, that's a fairly, you know, honourable yeah. thing to do at yeah. least. Yes, well, there you go. Uh, Andrew Bragg, who was thought to be the front runner for the pre-selection for Wentworth, he has also withdrawn his his uh, candidacy. Mm, he um, says he would like a woman to be pre-selected. Yeah, yeah, a refreshing position there from Andrew Bragg. Um, so a little bit about Andrew Bragg. He's currently at the Business Council of Australia. Um, he's 
he's a former party machine boss within the Liberal Party, so he's mm. a former office holder in the federal and state Liberal parties. Um, he's considered to be an expert fundraiser um, and he's someone who's been prominent on social media. Um, so he's from the moderate wing of the party, also the pro-business wing of the party, obviously. Yeah. And the rumour has it that he's going to get himself a, a very high Senate position and probably try and get himself elected to the Senate through the party apparatus, which is the traditional way for factional bosses to get into the parliament. Yes, it is. Um, ben, I just want to close out this discussion by mentioning the au pair issue because it's going yes, to continue um, throughout this week and obviously probably beyond. Um, we've seen a Senate inquiry into this. We've seen the former Border Force chief um, being brought before it and pretty much rat on his boss, to be honest. Well, not his boss anymore, Amy. Yeah, former boss. <laughs> <laughs> so that's right. Roman Quaidvlig, yes. uh, the former Border Force Commissioner. Uh, of course, the Border Force was that uh, shiny new paramilitary outfit created by Peter Dutton in order to unify various branches of Australia's national security apparatus. It takes in the old customs service um, as well as the federal police in some respects. Um, so the border force was uh, run by this fellow, Roman Quaidvlik. He then had to step down. He resigned after investigation into his conduct as commissioner because he had appointed uh, to a reasonably senior position a woman that he was having a sexual affair with. Mm. So that was obviously seen to be improper. So Quaidvlik stepped down. Uh, of course, uh, he seemed to have kept quite a big dirt file while he was the commissioner <laughs> and he's now selectively leaking out little tidbits of information against his former boss, that's correct, Home Affairs or former Home former Affairs, Affairs yes. Minister Peter Which Dutton. Which included immigration and now does not. That's right. So, so Dutton, after his ill-starred tilt at the Liberal leadership, has been forced to give up um, the crown jewel of the Home Affairs portfolio, which is now being split up again after yes. being, uh, you know, lumped together with about seven different ministries all in this big giant Home Affairs thing. Dutton's now had immigration taken off him um, and um, Quaid League has been busy basically fighting a media war against Dutton and all sorts of interesting information has emerged, including, and this is the subject of the Senate inquiry that yes. you mentioned, including whether Peter Dutton approved uh, visas at very short notice for a couple of au pairs, a couple of... French uh, and Italian. Yes, uh, European uh, people looking to do childminding in the homes of or a couple of high-profile business figures, including one liberal donor. Mm, uh, so, interesting. Uh, yep, yeah, so phone calls were apparently made to Peter Dutton's office and Dutton then did use his ministerial discretion, very wide powers are given to the immigration minister under Australian migration law uh, to approve the visas of these two individuals, which, of course, you know, is amazingly hypocritical when we look at the rhetoric, the incredibly mm. harsh rhetoric that's been used by successive immigration ministers, including, of course, by Dutton himself, when immigration minister about how we can't let anyone in, we, we, you know, we must protect the integrity of our borders and so on and so forth. And yet uh, when it comes to doing a favour for some mates, uh, apparently, uh, you know, exceptions can be made. Yes, well, whether there is an actual conflict of interest, there is at least a perceived 
conflict of interest because of a personal connection. So, you know, that is something which is really important in government is that even when there may be a perception by someone in the public that you could have a conflict, you really have to question your actions. Well, there's that. But I think it's more serious than that, Amy. I think that Peter Dutton has misled the parliament because he was... Well, it's up- possible he has because yeah. he denied having any personal connection to these uh, two people. That's right. Adam Bant asked him point blank, did, you, did he have a personal connection to these two individuals? Um, and he said no. And, um, and now it appears that he did, in fact, have a personal connection to at least some of the people who wanted these individuals to come into the country and get visas, mm. including a former colleague of his in the Queensland Police Force. Now, Dutton, of course, denies this, uh, but it seems on the face of the evidence that he has simply lied to Parliament. And that's a very, very serious offence. Uh, you know, I really think that um, if we are if we're serious about improving the public's trust in our parliament, then we actually need for parliamentarians to start resigning again for misleading parliament. Mm. It's meant to be one of the most serious things that you can do as a politician is is to lie in the federal parliament. And, yep. and I think that Dutton has misled the parliament here and I think he should resign. Well, Ben, we'll leave it there because there's so much more to discuss. I'm sure there'll be plenty more next week on this sideshow that is federal politics. Oh, the Muppet Show. Yes. Yes, it continues on. Yes. (laughs) Look forward to it next week, Amy. Great. Thanks so much, Ben. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense. This is 3RRR-FM and my name is Amy Mullins. I'll be taking you through till noon today as usual. And as I said, I'm really pleased to have with me in the studio Julian Burnside QC, who is a barrister and he's also a human rights advocate and uh, is extremely well known for his the cases that he takes on around asylum seekers and refugees. And uh, he joins me now. Hi there, Julian. Good morning. Good morning. It's so wonderful to have you here in person. I'm really um, pleased that you could make it and thank you for taking the time. That's a pleasure. The traffic was awful. Was it? (laughs) It was awful for me too. Yeah, I wasn't sure what was going on today. It felt Mm. like Monday. Now, I know um, you are delivering this Walter Lippmann Memorial Oration uh, on the 13th of September from 6pm at the Melbourne Town Hall. And the topic of the the oration you'll be giving is called Threats to Multiculturalism in Australia. And it's for the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria, which is a wonderful organisation. And, uh, excuse me, Uh, Walter Lippmann was actually... uh, a president of that council at at a point in time and was very public about uh, issues of race and ethnicity and certainly the Racial Discrimination Act. And uh, I wanted to pick out a quote that I found um, from the Canberra Times on December the 6th, 1976. And he's talking about the Racial Discrimination Act and, um, and multiculturalism. And he says, A cohesive multicultural Australian society can only be achieved by understanding of and respect for each group within it and by the active and meaningful participation of all groups in the structures of our society. I thought that was a really great mm. summation of, of multiculturalism and, it, and how you is. succeed. And, and, of course, it was at the inflection point where assimilation was regarded as having failed. And, and so, you know, if you get people from 
different different ethnic groups coming in who do not wish to assimilate and become Anglo's as it all was back then, um, then you risk those groups forming ghettos, which is not multiculturalism at all. No. And uh, Walter Lippmann was remarkably... He was just one of those people who was always busy, always busy, running around. He seemed to make friends with politicians on both sides of the fence and he was responsible for the creation of ethnic community councils. Um, and I think it's a great thing that the uh, uh, Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria uh, actually holds this oration for him each year. This is the eighth, I think? Seventh. Seventh, yeah. yeah. Excellent. And Walter was born uh, in 1919, so just at yeah. the end of World War One In Hamburg. In Germany, yeah. yes, which and was quite a um, progressive area of Germany at the time. Yeah, it was. And he, he was born into a um, comfortable um, sort of upper-middle Jewish household. But, of course, during the 1920s, even before the rise of Hitler, anti-Semitism uh, got going in Germany, I think largely as a result of the Treaty of Versailles, I mean, that's just mm. my opinion, the Treaty of Versailles was financially ruinous for Germany. And, yes. Um, well, they and did blame the Jewish people um, for being they, traitors, they, essentially. They, they did because Jews traditionally have been very good at handling money. And, um, and uh, Lippmann's family... Um, left after Kristallnacht and they got out to Australia, I think, in January of 39. Um, and he became very active uh, in multicultural-type activities in Australia. And, um, and I'm, I'm very glad to say that uh, a grandson of his, Matthew Albert, uh, is a member of the Victorian Bar. He's a person I've known for uh, a number of years. And he... His, um, third given name is Lippmann. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and and he, uh, Matthew tells me that he used to uh, spend time with Walter Lippmann quite often on his way to and from school. Um, so the influence is still there. The influence is still yeah. there. And, and I have to say, Matthew looks very much like the young Walter Lippmann. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fascinating. I was also very interested that um, his wife, Lorna Lippmann, was also an extremely influential advocate herself mm. for a range of issues and very but intelligent. Primarily for Aboriginal affairs. Yes. Um, and it's interesting that um, she was Lorna Mattinson, then Lorna Lippmann, and um, she did a great deal, a great deal for uh, Aborigines in Australia. Mm. It's sad in a way that she is not remembered in the same way that he is. Um, and it's also ironic that um, in in a country which I think has made multiculturalism very successful, Aborigines don't seem to be part of that. No. Uh. It's really discussed in the context of migration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, um, I actually d grew up not really understanding anything much about the plight of Aborigines in this country, um, but by good fortune in 2005, I think, I got briefed in a case in the South Australian Supreme Court for a bloke called Bruce Trevorrow, mm -hmm. who, uh, whose parents were Aboriginal 
uh, he was born in November 1956 at One Mile Camp Meningi on the Coorong in South Australia. And One Mile Camp was a, a settlement of humpies and things um, a mile outside Meningi because even then, in November 1956, it was unlawful for Aborigines to live nearer than one mile to a place of white settlement unless they had a permit. So anyway, Bruce grew up at One Mile Camp Meningi and on Christmas Day 57, when he was 13 months old, he got very sick and he was taken up to the children's hospital, which is about an hour's drive away. He was put in there and for the case, we managed to get hold of the hospital records which showed that he was diagnosed as suffering from gastroenteritis and there was a wave mm -hmm. of gastro going through South Australia at the time. He was treated appropriately. A week later he was better and a week after that he was given away to a white family who lived in suburban Adelaide. And as it happens, that white family had a daughter who was 16 at the time uh, that Bruce was taken by them. And uh, she came along as a woman in advanced middle age and gave evidence during his case. Wow. And she said that her mother had always wanted a second daughter. And they saw an ad offering Aboriginal babies. They went to the hospital, uh, saw a cute curly-headed little girl at the end of the lineup, and they said, we'll take her. She's handed over to them. And when they got her home and changed her nappy, it turned out she was a boy. <laughs> That's how casual it was for an Aboriginal child to be given away in, in what was that, January 58 that he was That's given shocking. away. That's shocking, yeah. And it was only by doing Bruce's case that I learned that the connection between Abor Aboriginal people and the land is closer than the relation between an Aboriginal person and their parents. Mm. Um, so here we are. We've got 2.6 or 2.7% of the population who are regarded by a lot of Australians as no-hopers and um, they, you know, our ancestors took the land from them, caused them great harm, then we took their children from them and caused them even more harm and we say, oh, well, they're hopeless. Now, yeah. why? Why don't we look around and think maybe we're part of the problem? Exactly. I was really shocked and appalled when uh, Tony Abbott implied that the, the decision to live in remote areas by Indigenous Australians, which are obviously because they have that significant tie to the land um, with which they come from, was that it was a lifestyle choice and the Western Australian government did not want to provide electricity and running water to these remote areas. And I just couldn't even believe that that was something which they were suggesting that they should move back into main areas, main towns where they don't have that close connection. Yeah, look, I, um, I, I it's it's very. I, I don't know. I don't know the details of those circumstances, and I don't remember Abbott saying that. It's very oh, quite it's known, yeah. Amazing it's to still think he was our Prime now. Minister once. <laughs> and also, um, he he really took on that Indigenous Affairs portfolio and still has now been appointed Special Envoy. Yeah. To, so and it yet, continues. he seems dissatisfied with that. Mm. I'm not sure why. Uh, anyway, so... So, yes. But I, I think it's interesting. I, uh, um, I It worries me. In Melbourne especially, perhaps Melbourne more than other capitals... It's impossible to go to a public event without someone standing up and acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and their elders yeah. past, present and emerging and so on. But while we acknowledge that we 
meet on land that was theirs, I wonder why we don't go forward and acknowledge that our ancestors took it from them and caused them mm. great damage. It's a real pity. And frankly, I was interested um, working with Bruce in the course of his case. Bruce was... Well, he's taken from his parents basically when he's 13 months old. Um, he didn't see his mother again until he was 10. Um, the law had changed by then and, and he was able to meet her. The father had died by that time, so he never actually knew his natural father. Mm. Um, and and um, when Bruce first met his mother and his two brothers and I think one of his sisters... He was sort of interested, the way 10-year-olds are, and it was arranged that he would go down and stay with them uh, the following, I think the following Easter. In any event, when the time came, a lady from Aboriginal Affairs came round to Bruce's house in suburban Adelaide, put him on the bus, and um, uh, once the bus had left, the foster mother, she wasn't exactly a foster mother but equivalent, um, said he's too difficult, I won't have him back and so the Aborigines department posted his toys and his books and his clothes after him that's the way he was reunited with his natural family, not a single I mean he'd never even, he'd met them once in his in his childhood um, anyway that didn't work out very well and Bruce decided to try and get back to suburban Adelaide from Victor Harbour, where the family was living at that point. So he set out to walk back to Adelaide, which is a long walk, mm. and he was picked up by the police on the way back and he was put into state care for the balance of his childhood. But it was interesting, um, working with Bruce, he, um, every time he had got in any sort of trouble, he'd be sent off for a psych assessment. Every psych assessment from the age of nine showed that he seemed to have no idea of who he was or where he belonged. There's surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting to see the generational influences of these things. He was a, not a good husband. He was a terrible father. And he couldn't really relate very successfully to anyone older than about 18 months, mm. um, which is interesting. Well, it's said that the first 10 years are very formative in yeah. terms of brain development. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, um, uh, Bruce... Uh, Bruce became the first member of the stolen generation to be found by court to have been taken unlawfully and to have suffered damage and to be awarded compensation as a result. He's still mm -hmm. the only one, interestingly. Now, Bruce's brothers, Tom and George Trevorrow, didn't get gastro, weren't sent to hospital. The Aboriginal Aborigines Department records show that they reckoned his family were pretty good. Uh, and so they grew up at One Mile Camp, then Three Mile Camp, and they became leaders of the Narangiri community. And that is interesting because we didn't get judgment in the case until August of t 2007, uh, and um, a bit later that year, Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister for the first time and said that the first order of business was going to be an apology to the Stolen Generations, and he wanted some Aboriginal people in the public gallery of the House of Representatives. Tom and George Trevorrow, as leaders, were invited. Bruce wasn't. Really? <laughs> and we reminded, the, uh, the, um, we reminded the bureaucrats that Bruce was the only 
person to have been found by a court to be a member of the Stolen Generation, so they quickly hurried out an invitation <laughs> and he got there. Yeah. But he died in the middle of June that year, t- 2008, just short of his 52nd birthday. A uh, bit younger than average mm. uh, male Aboriginal life expectancy. But I was really, really glad that Bruce... He sort of set a milestone and he became a bit of a local hero. He was living at Bansdale at the time and he became a bit of a local hero down there and I think it made a pretty unhappy life happy at last, which was yeah. good. But the the reason I mention that uh, is, is um, not only because I regard it as one of the most interesting and important cases that I've done, but because it shows the generational effects of... Um, what we did to Aborigines. Yeah. And and I thought recently, um, given that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and we don't plan to give it back to them, mm. what about a once-off 2.7% tax on the capital value of all the land we took? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people yeah. wouldn't like it, but it would no. raise hundreds of millions of dollars and all of that money would be put aside in a special account to be used specifically to support Aboriginal communities. And um, I kind of hope that Lorna Lipman would approve of the idea. Yes. Well, she was apparently a very um, charismatic person herself. And one of the quotes was she was described as a huge intellect cloaked in elegance and charm. Yes. Which I really liked that description. Um, I think it's really that you raise an excellent point about this area of multiculturalism and the fact that uh, Indigenous people really do need to be considered more than considered you know they are the original people of this land Mm. and we did come and take their land from them so you know to even assume that they're not part of the the cultural makeup multicultural makeup sometimes is staggering you also raise a really important point um, in a range of uh, lectures that you've mentioned about this whole issue of the Tampa crisis that happened which I still remember I was um, in high school at the time I remember it very clearly I remember September 11 very clearly and those two events that happened during the Howard government he was seeking re-election there was huge question marks at the time over whether he would actually succeed because there were quite a few scandals happening at the time and I just remember thinking as soon as September 11 happened oh no there goes the election he's definitely going to be re-elected and it seems like it was this pivotal moment in not just Australian politics but also global politics. Well across the west at least. Yes in terms of how we perceive uh, those who are part of the Muslim community and also how we perceive and identify terrorism and terrorists because previous to that there were a great number of uh, Caucasian terrorists, homegrown terrorists from Mm. their own nations um, committing huge acts certainly in America even in, in Australia. Yep. Well, actually, terrorism in Australia has been pretty limited. There was the Sydney Hilton bombing in 1978. Mm, that was the last major attack. Ah, uh, well... Apart from... Well, would well, you count the Port Arthur massacre? Uh, that wasn't a terrorist attack. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Oh, mass murder is one thing. Terrorism is different. Because mm, um, it's about instilling fear and anxiety well, it's, it's, and it's, hatred. It's, it's, it's orthodox criminal offences committed with a political motive. Mm. Um And the response to September 11 was interesting because, terrible though it was, it resulted in uh, a real spike in Islamophobia, which is shocking, 
and yet no consequences for our relations with Saudi Arabia, and yet all the September 11 bombers were Saudis. Very interesting. Isn't it? The, yeah. America's position on that has been deeply hypocritical. Um, the... the uh, I, I, I think... I think Islamophobia is is being stirred by sort of dog whistle politics amongst politicians. It's really quite serious. But I was, I was just thinking about um, terrorism in Australia. If you want to find, you know, the biggest terrorist act, can you think of what is the biggest terrorist act, undoubtedly terrorist act, mm. in Australian history? Probably the taking of land from Aborigines? Um, no, I no? don't think that would be regarded as a terrorist act, but the Eureka Stockade. Oh! The Eureka Stockade That's in 1854. Yeah. That was a terrorist act. And and yet the, the, the people who led that were sort of local heroes. You know, Peter Lawler became a member of the mm. uh, Victorian government. Um, uh, and and well, interestingly, the latest, the latest theory about um, Ned Kelly is the, the things that he did. He did in order to establish a, a separate colony in north-east Victoria. And if that's right, then what he did was also terrorism. So we, 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 hold, you know, we, reckon, we reckon Ned Kelly's fantastic, but mm-hmm. he was arguably a terrorist. Mm-hmm. We, we acknowledge the Eureka Stockade every year, and yet that was a terrorist event. Um, and we seem to be really so frightened of terrorism that we're prepared to condemn a whole religion. It's mad. Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up in Melbourne, there was a very sharp rift between Protestants and Catholics. That was very, very marked. I don't know. It disappeared in sometime in the 60s, and I can't yeah. really remember well, how. It was most marked in the cris- conscription referendums. It certainly brought out those huge mm. divisions between Protestants and Catholics. Mm. Well, I remember as a school kid, you know, the... Um, Catholics had their ditties about Protestants and Protestants had their ditties about Catholics and it was just Well, it was crazy. also very dangerous or at least frowned upon to marry, like cross-marry between oh, yes. Catholics and That's Protestants. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but but now those div- that division seems to have healed over and instead we've got Islamophobia um, and it really kicked into life after September 11. Um, but it's... It's rather uncomfortable to think that Islamophobia uh, here and across the West is just the modern equivalent of anti-Semitism, which was pretty prominent before the Second World War. Mm. Um, if if you need to give Adolf Hitler credit for anything, and that's a big question, he gave anti-Semitism a bad name. <laughs> well, it certainly did exist before... Oh, Adolf yeah. Hitler. Well, it existed it, even there, there in the was, 19th century. It, it, oh, absolutely. Uh, and in in 1938, I can't remember which part of the year, but in 1938, there was a conference held at Evian in France uh, specifically to see what could be done to resolve the problems facing Jews who were trying to leave um, Germany. Um, and uh, the Australian representative was Thomas White, who in a lengthy speech observed that we do not have a racial problem in Australia and we do not intend to import one. <laughs> wow. Yeah. When the white Australia policy was very strong. Well, it was that, but, but also we were very strongly Anglo-oriented. Mm. Uh, 
But it's, it's, it's sobering to reflect on the fact that it was government policy in 1938 that we were not going to help resettle Jews fleeing Germany. And we all had a fairly good idea, I think, of how, how they were being treated in Germany. But yes. I think the Evian conference was before Kristallnacht, so maybe that shifted attitudes a little bit. Yeah, certainly was a pivotal moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we... I don't know what it is about human beings, but it seems that we always need to find someone to dislike. And that's why I'm so impressed that Victoria especially mm. is so well tuned to the idea of multiculturalism. Yes. Um, with luck, we'll get over our Islamophobia. Um, Hopefully. Well, if we look back into history, because you have raised an excellent point in terms of the history of Australia and race and multiculturalism, we saw um, migrants from Europe come across, certainly Italians, Greeks, and they were often singled out as being very different. Some people disliked them because of their difference. Then we saw um, the Vietnamese and certain other Asian uh, refugees come across um, after Vietnam and during that period and Malcolm Fraser was really important in welcoming them and we also saw, you know, Pauline Hanson talk about uh, this being a major issue and, you know, singling out Asians. Now she's moved on to mm. Muslims. Muslims yes. I mean, you, we have seen that kind of progression where there is this um, significant uh, pushback from some parts of the community against difference, uh, cultural difference and, and how people practice their religion or their their food and their, you know, gatherings. Do you think it's possible that it may be a similar thing is happening here and, and it will have a similar life or is there something fundamentally different? Um, it's, I, I think it's very similar actually. Um, it may, whether it can be overcome in quite the same way is another question. I mean, when in, in the post-war reconstruction years, when a lot of migrants came to Australia from non-Anglo backgrounds, as, as you say, specifically Italian and Greek migrants, uh, many of them refugees or displaced persons and so on, they were treated quite badly. Mm. Um, but it's, it's one thing to say, well, that group isn't like us, so we'll push them aside. It's something very different to say those people, those Muslims are dangerous, awful people. We don't want them here. That's very yes. different. Well, uh, it's politicisation I mean, by, yeah. you know, the government, essentially. Yeah. And, and of course, Howard exploited it ruthlessly in the November 2001 election. Um, the, as you observed, the Tampa judgment was handed down on the 11th of September 2001 in Melbourne and eight or nine hours later the attack on America happened and uh, everything looks different. Uh, he then, and I remember the atmosphere in Australia was very weird after that. Mm. You, you know, you couldn't say anything favourable to Muslims at all without people thinking you're a traitor or something. Uh, I had a friend who is a middle-aged Indian woman and who wore a headdress, which was characteristic of the group she came from. And so that looked a bit like hijab for the very first time, although she's lived in Melbourne for decades, for the very first time she was being spat on in public transport because she's wearing a headdress. Mm. Um, terrible. Anyway, Howard went to the polls, uh, the election in November 2001, 
under the tag, we will decide who comes to the country and the circumstance in which they come, yeah. which um, was... If he was talking about migration, he was right. If he's talking about refugee policy, he's totally wrong. Totally wrong. Yes. And and the um, the example I like to give is that I'm entitled to say I'll decide who comes to my house and the circumstance in which they come. That's fair enough, a little bit unfriendly. And if I'm fed up with having people visiting, I can say I'm not having visitors till Thursday week, <laughs> which would be unfriendly but legitimate. But what if the next morning a little kid runs up to the door and says, help me, there's a man with a big knife chasing me. I could say come back on Thursday week, but I wouldn't. No. That would be outrageous. What you do is you bring her in, sit her down, check her story. If she's telling the truth, protect her. If she's lying, send her home. Mm. That's, and that's what refugee policy is. Migration policy, sure, we decide. Um, refugee policy, especially with people who simply turn up um, as boat people, I think we should treat them decently and I don't care what the colour of their skin is or what religion they follow. Um, it doesn't make any difference. Mm. Let's get into that a bit. I'm speaking with Julian Burnside QC who um, is delivering uh, the Walter Lippmann or oration uh, which is happening on the 13th of September. We're talking about the threat to multiculturalism and you have spoken about the, the three streams of refugee intake, the offshore resettlement program, which is, I guess, what politicians would consider the orderly way to do things, but it takes a very long time. Um, I, I've always wondered, I mean, there's this other um, idea about aeroplane people and boat people and um, the fact that uh, this critical difference is that not only passports and travel documentation as to wh which route you can take, but then also um, whether you can obtain a visa and that whether you can well, therefore come in by aeroplane or yeah, by exactly, boat. Exactly. You can't get on an aeroplane unless you've got an Australian passport or a valid visa. Uh, because, um, a, a, as anyone knows who's travelled outside Australia, when you're boarding the plane into Australia, the airline checks your papers very carefully because they're told by the government, if you bring anyone here who's not entitled to enter Australia, you take them back at your own cost. Mm. Um, so they're an extension of Australian border force. Yes. But one of the things that, you know, we've really thought about, and I think at one point was more conscious, was that you know, you're talking about processing. You would sit someone down, verify their story, seek to verify their story once you understand the situation with which they've come from, and then, um, you know, deal with the process in an orderly but also efficient manner. And it seems as if it's almost, it's, well, it appears deliberate that, you know, this delay of processing people's applications has been going on for so long. I mean, mm. why does it take that long to process someone's application? Um, well, if you're talking about um, people who turn up as boat people, um, sometimes that can take a fairly long time if they don't have documents which demonstrate where they come from, who they are. On the other hand, if they are Rohingyan from Myanmar or if they're Hazaras from Afghanistan, then it's like saying, oh, hang on, you're a Jew from Germany in 1939. I wonder if you're a refugee. Let's find out what your <laughs> yeah. full name is. <laughs> you know, it's a no-brainer. It is, yeah. They, they are highly, 
they're almost certain to be valid refugees. And yet, you're right, we, the department seems to sit on its hands for years on end. There are people at Yonga Hill in Western Australia in the detention centre, the 300-odd, who came here as boat people and who have been waiting for years for someone to assess their refugee claim. Mm. That's outrageous. No, exactly. And also certainly not um, a good use of taxpayer funds given how expensive it is to lock people up and keep them in offshore detention or onshore detention in Australia for so long. Well, offshore detention is more expensive. That's the most expensive Mm. possible way of dealing with people. Um, At Senate Estimates last September... Uh, an official from the Immigration Department said that the offshore processing arrangement we have right now with 1,620 people odd Mm. um, in Manus and Nauru, uh, offshore processing costs us just over $1 billion a year. That is $650,000 per person per year. Now, if, if I could go to Canberra and wave a wand and change the policy, I'd say, first of all, shut down offshore processing because it's outrageous. Yes. It's cruel and it's ridiculously expensive and it's terrible. Um, uh, I would say I will assume that the boats start arriving again and if the boats start arriving again, I would allow that they uh, can be put in detention initially but I'd limit that to one month of detention. Mm. And then, pending their refugee status assessment, I'd say release them into the community um, um, on a visa which lets them work, gives them full access to Medicare and Centrelink benefits and requires them to live in a specified regional town or city, not in the capitals. Um, and, And I would even consider the implications when their refugee... when they qualify for a protection visa and overwhelmingly they do Mm. um like 90 plus percent uh, turn out eventually to be real refugees just like they said um i would contemplate when they get their protection visas um having a condition in the protection visa that they had to live for the next couple of years in regional australia not a specific regional town but in regional australia generally so that the pressure on the capitals is not increased and, you know, regional Australia is crying out yes. for more population. They and are. And even, even if you assume that every single one of them stayed on full Centrelink benefits for the whole time, that would cost vastly less than $654,000 per person per year, mm. which the offshore processing is costing. And most of that cost is in relation to people who have been accepted as refugees, but Nauru and Papua New Guinea are having trouble placing them anywhere and Australia said you'll never be allowed to come here. Yes. Well, it seems like common sense and I think that's why this show is called Uncommon Sense because of how uncommon it is. I want to um, close out this discussion, Julian, by mentioning and talking about politicians because often the way that we discuss multiculturalism now is a thing that we ticked off the list. We're the most successful multicultural nation in the world, apparently. We've done it. It's ticked and therefore there's an achievement. It doesn't feel like a project that is ongoing. I wonder, is it a project that should be perceived as ongoing and are there any politicians left that can take up the mantle and really, um, you know, be talking about multiculturalism given how negative it has become to even, you know, believe in this idea when it comes to Muslims, certainly? 
Um, I think it should be regarded as a project that continues. And what I would like to see is Australia collectively acknowledging the benefits of our multicultural society at least one day each year so that we remember what it is, so that we acknowledge the importance of multiculturalism in this country. Mm. I think that would be a really good thing. And then the politicians will pick up on that and they'll probably think, oh, yeah, well, we'll make sure we're on the right side of the division. Yes. Um, it would. I think that would be fantastic. And, and, of course, that might then make it a little more likely that... Um, Aboriginal people and Muslim people will be incorporated in this sort of multicultural exercise which is not assimilation but is, um, you know, sort of separate but equal. Well, I don't even like separate but equal. That's no, a bad well, it's expression. really embracing but everyone yeah, as yeah, each other as equals. Acknowledging and appreciating your heritage mm. while sharing contemporary values in Australia. That's really what it's about. It's an excellent way to put it. Julian Burnside, it's been fantastic to speak with you and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned in to 3RRR FM. This is Amy Mullins. And uh, for some reason, there's something happening with Novation, so I'm going to have to check in with that. But that doesn't matter because it means I now get to speak with Don Rothwell from the ANU. He is uh, based up in Canberra, of course, and Don uh, joins me on the phone to talk about the International Whaling Commission meeting that is currently being conducted uh, in Brazil. And uh, it starts... Well, it's all about... um, whaling, certainly commercial whaling, um, which is currently banned in most parts of the world. Um, There's a a small amount of whaling that is um, able to be done by small groups of people who have traditionally uh, relied upon whales for a food source, and that's up in the Nordic areas. Um, But you know, for all intents and purposes, whaling is um, is banned as far as I, my understanding is. And uh, Japan is seeking to uh, revoke that ban and uh, to enable them to whale even more than they are already currently doing. Um, so Don Rothwell joins me now. Hi there. Good morning. How are you doing? Morning. I'm really good, thank you. And thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're welcome. So I'd really like to actually just start with a bit of background. Um, I know that many people who are passionate about whales and the environment would have remembered, um, you know, that Australia played a key role really in bringing uh, Japan to um, the International Court of Justice uh, around scientific whaling and the whaling they were conducting. And from memory, there wasn't... uh, legal precedent around this court case and so it required uh, relying upon the principles of law that exist around this area and that you provided some very important expertise and insight. Um, What was your involvement in that case and what was the outcome? So I was initially approached by uh, a non-governmental organisation, the International Fund for Animal Welfare Um, And I started working with them back in 2005, providing them with some initial legal advice as to the way in which Japan's conduct of its whaling program in the Southern Ocean uh, could be challenged. Uh, And then um, following the election of the Rudd government, 
the Australian government decided to pick up some of that legal advice and ultimately commence proceedings against Japan in the international court. And as you have alluded to, uh, Australia ultimately was successful in winning, winning that challenge uh, in March uh, 2014. However, most importantly, um, that decision did not abolish uh, Japanese scientific whaling, but rather ruled that the then whaling program that Japan was undertaking was contrary to international law. So since then, Japan has modified its whaling program and continues to whale under a significantly adjusted whaling program, which they call New Rep A. So really it's, I guess, a legal loophole that they're exploiting at the moment. Correct, and that's the problem with the international court decision in that whilst Australia was successful, uh, Article 8 of the Whaling Convention, which is the article that Japan relies upon to undertake so-called scientific research, uh, still remains in place in the convention and that's the basis upon which Japan says legally uh, they can conduct their their current scientific whaling program in the Southern Ocean. Mm, because um, I did mention there that killing whales for profit was banned in 1986 but there are some exemptions there that Norway and Iceland have also uh, taken advantage of but certainly not, I don't think, to the same extent as Japan. Is that correct? That's correct. So there are a number of exceptions for what's called Aboriginal subsistence whaling and uh, the International Whaling Commission regularly considers very small quotas of 10 or less whales that are given to uh, Aboriginal groups, uh, principally uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. There are some other groups also in the Caribbean. Um, Iceland and Norway fall under certain exceptions because of the uh, legal obligations that they have under the convention. Um, but as a general observation, uh, the points that you've been making are correct, that there's very little commercial whaling undertaken and that there is some um, Aboriginal subsistence whaling undertaken. Indeed, and we've seen reports recently that Japanese whalers have killed over 50 mink whales in an Antarctic marine protection area this year. Um, is there or Are there current rules around uh, protected areas in this law? Well, interestingly, um, there are not, um, and that's another loophole that Japan is able to take advantage of. So, in the Southern Ocean at the moment, which surrounds Antarctica, we have what's called a, a Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary where all commercial whaling is prohibited. We also have some marine protected areas that you've alluded to, um, but those provisions don't cover uh, the conduct of Japan's so-called scientific whaling program, which is currently conducted under New Rep A. So once again, uh, Japan is able to circumvent uh, those limitations on commercial whaling in the Southern Ocean. Indeed. And so, I mean, a lot of uh, environmentalists and other interested people and politicians believed that Australia had a great success in that court win. And then we've seen uh, Japan recommence its scientific whaling, as you say, under different conditions. Um, there is, There are avenues available to Australia in terms of appeals. Is there a reason why Australia hasn't uh, continued to pursue this in the court? Yes, um, there's one important reason, and that is that since the 2014 decision of the International Court, Japan has adjusted its acceptance of the jurisdiction of the International Court, and that would create a significant barrier to Australia seeking to go back into the court and challenge the legitimacy of the new Rep A program. Uh, having said that, there are some other legal options that Australia 
uh, could choose to pursue, but uh, at this point in time, it's not done so. So we we come to this point where um, we've seen Bob Brown be um, very vocal around this meeting that's occurring in Brazil for the International um, Whaling Commission. And he has certainly criticised Australia in terms of uh, the delegate that we have sent, our representative in the government, uh, is Senator Anne Rustin, who is the Assistant Minister for International Development and the Pacific. Uh, that's not a cabinet appointed position. And um, is it the case that it's kind? It's quite unprecedented uh, in terms of sending such a junior minister, whose portfolio it isn't really uh, in, involved in, to to go to such an important meeting like this. Well, certainly in the time that I've been following these matters, I cannot recall an occasion when the Australian Minister for the Environment has not attended uh, an IWC meeting, and that's both uh, Liberal uh, ministers, including Malcolm Turnbull, who at one time was the Environment Minister and attended, uh, and Labor ministers such as Peter Garrett. So there's been a fairly strong bipartisan support for always sending the relevant minister uh, within which uh, the whaling issue sits, and that's, in this instance, the Minister for the Environment, Melissa Price. Yes, exactly. And and I want to talk about the, the commission itself and so that we can understand its significance and the powers that it does have. What was it set up for and what is it, um, I guess, currently dealing with in terms of its remit? Well, look, one of the interesting things is that the, the Commission was set up in 1946, so it's actually a very old uh, international body. And, of course, when it was originally set up, it was very much designed to uh, regulate whaling, um, but to that end, oversee whaling as an industry. Um, but as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, that very much changed in the 1980s with the introduction of the moratorium on whaling. And so... Uh, since the 1980s, the, the International Whaling Commission has adopted very much a, a conservation-focused approach. Um, but that doesn't mean that that has unanimous support within the Commission, and countries like Japan and other allies um, have been seeking to overturn the moratorium, and ultimately uh, that's one of the proposals that, if it was adopted this week in Brazil, uh, would set and train a process which could, under, which could see the moratorium overturned and commercial whaling resumed by as early as 2020. Well, we've heard some uh, discussion around the fact that Japan has been lobbying certain countries to uh, come onto their side to support their motion uh, to recommence commercial whaling. Do you have an idea at the moment as to how likely it is that Japan will garner any kind of significant support for this particular motion? Look, I think it needs to be acknowledged that uh, in the past when these types of votes have been held, um, the vote has been relatively close uh, and all that's required is a majority of those uh, members uh, attending. Um, I'm advised that we're looking at about 80, uh, sorry, uh, 70, 74, 75 members uh, attending the IWC meeting in Brazil this week. Um, there are apparently some new member states that have joined uh, with the support and backing of Japan. So it could end up being a, a fairly close-run thing, given that all that's required is a majority, as I've said. Exactly. And so um, it's interesting to note that Anne Rustin is not staying for the whole meeting. In fact, I don't even think she's there for the majority of the time that this uh, meeting is being run. I mean, what kind of signal does something like that uh, send when Australia, who was the uh, greatest 
I guess, um, adversary, legal adversary to Japan is not even uh, attending the meeting in full? Well, look, um, it, it is true. That's also my understanding that the uh, minister uh, will not be attending all of the meeting. Um, my understanding is that uh, tomorrow uh, in Brazil um, will be the critical day for the decision on the issue about uh, the Japanese proposal to put in place a process to overturn the moratorium. Um, the absence of the Australian minister, if the minister is indeed absent, absent will, I'm sure, be noted. Uh, and that will um, no doubt have some ick of an impact upon Australia's ability to lobby and put forward its its relevant position on the floor of the Commission. That said, um, Australia is represented by its uh, International Whaling Commissioner, uh, Dr Nick Gales. Dr Gales is a very respected uh, whaling scientist who's had a long experience with the IWC. So um, Australia will not be unrepresented at this meeting, um, but no doubt the, the absence of the Minister will be noted, I'm sure. Yes, that's an excellent point to make. Um, in terms of the this vote and whether the moratorium uh, might be lifted, what would be the consequence of that? And, I mean, how many countries are not conducting commercial whaling uh, that potentially would start up commercial whaling beyond Japan? Well, look, um, we've already spoken about Norway and Iceland, uh, and if we saw a, a change to some of the circumstances under which commercial whaling could be conducted, uh, Norway and Iceland, I'm sure, might revisit their circumstances under the convention. Um, so, as I said, um, if Japan was successful with this vote uh, this week, that would set in train a process uh, the process would, uh, would would probably play out, I think, over the next 12 months or so. So we're not going to see an immediate resumption of commercial whaling. Um, Japan has strongly argued that uh, there should be a resumption of what's called small coastal-type whaling, and that's the taking of whales within the coastal waters within 200 nautical miles of the Japanese coastline. So there could be some quid pro quo here. Japan might say, well, look, we'd like to whale within waters adjacent to our coast, Australia might be prepared to make a concession on that point, providing Japan abandons uh, its Southern Ocean scientific whaling program. So there's a number of options in terms of this could play out. Uh, but as I said, we first of all need to get to a majority support for the Japanese reform proposal and then we'll need to see how that proceeds over the next year or so. Indeed. And if we look at the flip side, uh, I know there are some countries and, and individuals who are seeking to alter the purpose of the International Whaling Commission uh, for it to be more of a conservation body or a protection body rather than uh, what its original purpose was. Do you think that that kind of movement for change might eventually occur either at this meeting or in future? Well, um, we then come back, as you say, to the flip side, and that is whether those states who are supporting that type of proposal uh, really have majority support. Now, it needs to be recalled that at the moment we do have a moratorium in place. We do have whale sanctuaries in place in the Southern Ocean and in the you know, and in the Indian Ocean. So there is, a, in fact, a lot of framework in place already for conservation and, and support for whale stocks uh, and for the promotion of whale watching, uh, non-lethal means of research. Um, it's just that if those states wish to continue to pursue that uh, line of argument, uh, they need to be actively presenting uh, that position and arguing for that position at, at these IWC meetings. Indeed. And I know you do have colleagues over there in Brazil. Um, do you have any insight from them as to how discussions are playing out over there? 
look, uh, I think one of the interesting things at the moment is who, in fact, will be able to uh, vote uh, when it comes down to a vote. As I said, um, there are 75 states uh, with delegations attending. Uh, apparently only 74 of those can vote, but there's some question marks even amongst those 74. So it, th- there will be some issues about the eligibility of some of the delegations to be able to vote and participate uh, in the meetings. And, and that comes down to the question that I raised beforehand about Japan uh, seeking to garner some support by uh, new members to the International Violent Commission. So that's a, a very pivotal point, you know, who actually has the eligibility to vote on the floor of the Commission when we come down to some crunch votes uh, later in the week. Indeed. And I, I wonder if you can um, give us some insight into Japan's stated intentions for its scientific whaling program and why it is so strongly and doggedly pursuing this whaling program. You know, a lot of Australians and I'm sure others don't quite understand the motives behind it. Do you have any insight into that? Well, I think uh, Japan's position has always been uh, that the moratorium, uh, when it was adopted in the 1980s, was a temporary moratorium and that um, once whale stocks had returned to sustainable levels, uh, there should be a reconsideration of uh, permits being granted for commercial whaling. So part of Japan's justification for its uh, ongoing scientific program is to say, well, look, uh, we need to undertake research into whale stocks. We need to understand how sustainable and healthy those whale stocks are. And that research actually ends up informing us being able to make better decisions about uh, ultimately making judgments about the resumption of commercial whaling. So that's that's one line of argument that Japan has consistently been made uh, over the last uh, two or three decades, really. Mm, it is really curious to think that one needs to kill whales in order to find out that kind of thing through a scientific study. Um, and that's probably why a lot of people are quite puzzled. And we see that in other areas such as native forest logging and the Greater Glider more recently. Yes, and, and, and one of the points that uh, the Australian government has been making uh, over the past decade, and Peter Garrett, when he was Environment Minister, was very strong on this point, was to say that uh, there are now many, many uh, non-lethal ways in which research can be conducted into whale stocks uh, in which a significant amount of data can actually be gathered uh, in terms of the status and the health of those whale stocks. So why is there a need to undertake lethal means of research into whales? The Japanese response to that is to say, well, look, actually the convention permits us to undertake uh, lethal whaling and, and we will continue to do so. So we've got some significant legacy issues here, as I was originally negotiated back in 1946. Times have significantly changed uh, since then. Yes, and it's certainly uh, sometimes hard to make sure that the law and also conventions keep up with uh, contemporary changes in society, and I know that is quite difficult to do. If if we were looking to change kind of international law, is it is that a difficult process to undertake? Yes, that's a, that's actually a good question, and so even if Japan is successful in getting this resolution adopted. Um, they're proposing that the whaling convention be modified so that uh, only a simple majority would be required to amend what's called the schedule of the convention and it's a schedule uh, that currently contains all of the technical detail about uh, conservation and the moratorium that we've been considering this morning. Um, at the moment a, a three-quarters majority of states is required to make those adjustments so there needs to be a technical amendment of the convention. Um, an, an amendment of the convention however requires unanimous support 
and ultimately, uh, even if Japan is successful this week, uh, I find it very difficult to see that there would be unanimous, unanimous support for amending the convention in the way that Japan is proposing. Don, thank you very, very much for your expertise and your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been extremely illuminating. Good. It's been great to speak with you. Three, triple, ah. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM in Melbourne. This is Amy Mullins and uh, I have my next guest in the studio with me. She is Fiona Patton, MLC. Uh, Fiona was elected to the Upper House, the Legislative Council of um, the Victorian Parliament and Fiona has a long involvement in political issues and advocacy and she's written a memoir called Sex, Drugs and the Electoral role and it's out through Alan and Unwin and uh, Fiona joins me now. Hi there. Hi Amy. Hi. I was really um, excited to see your book because (laughs) I thought, great a political memoir I actually want to read (laughs) that isn't you know self-congratulatory and all about you know the wonderful things they, they have done and you know a little bit of the inner workings, Mm. the playing the game of politics that people so like to hear all the gossip Yes, there is a little bit, but it's very illuminating of Australian politics, Mm. state and federal, the kind of things that go on behind the scenes that most of the general public would have absolutely no idea of the extent of. No, I think that I think that's right. I think people people see what what people see of politicians and sadly it's not actually a very good image but you see these sort of like two animals rutting and that's question time mm. um but yes there there is a lot more to the parliamentary process than that exactly yeah and there is quite a lot of um consensus on some issues mm. it, it is really interesting uh, that i saw a tweet the other day from a press gallery journalist who was in the Victorian Parliament and was saying that they could not hear um, the shadow minister for women who was a national, Mm. I think her name was Emma. Emma Keeley. Yes. They could not hear what she was saying above the shouting that was going on at her. Well, and possibly from her own party. Yeah. You know, there will be people... I, I learned very early on that question time is not answer time mm. and that's really important to recognise that because then then the whole um, drama and, you know, that that is question time actually makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that is very true. Um, I want to get into your election to mm. Parliament. You are one of the many politicians who had many goes at it. Um, yeah. It's really a bit of a misnomer that people just get elected the first time. Not many people are that lucky. I Yeah, I don't think there's anyone who's quite that lucky. I, I know that it... Yeah, I mean, it, I think it was... A, we had a fairly fast track. We, we formed the party in 2009. Mm. And you are the founder and leader of that party. So, yeah. you know, let's not shy away from the fact that you're responsible for it. That, that's right. I take complete responsibility <laughs> or blame for it. Yeah, it um, was but, called the Sex Party. So people yes. may remember that when they were voting in previous years. Yeah. And it's now the Reason Party. That's right. So hopefully that doesn't work against us. But <laughs> hopefully we, we are 
um, proving that we can bring a bit of reason uh, to Parliament. But yet, you know, it's it does take people quite a long time, and um, you know, and I think we kind of fast tracked because we started in two thousand and nine and were elected by two thousand and fourteen, and that's that's probably a faster uh, route than I think even the Greens took longer to yeah. get to get MPs up with with Bob Brown being the first. Um, who's a hero of mine as totally. well. Totally. <laughs> I'm on that train. No, yes. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting because it does take a lot for uh, a party to gain mm. awareness in the voting public to have quality candidates that you can rely That's on. Right. And we've seen that with some of the One Nation candidates, for example, mm. who, you know, the vetting process is not that thorough. Um, <laughs> and, and we've seen some other really interesting additions mm. to the federal Senate, like Jackie Lambie. Yeah who, you know, certainly um, did add a different dimension to the parliament and I think made a contribution in some areas that perhaps people, you know, don't remember because all they remember is, you know, the controversial moments. But Mm. you have, I mean, done a lot in your time, not only as a parliamentarian, but previous to that, um, you know, your whole Life is fascinating. (laughs) And I think your mum is like a legend. Yeah. What an amazing woman. Mm. Every single time you played up, you know, as a teenager or a young person in this book, your mum's response was just golden and so switched on and... Yeah, yeah. Look, she she certainly had a doctorate in reverse psychology um, and, you know, she just... I think she also had this ability to nip things in the bud. Mm. Um, and while she was, she had, you know, she was a fairly conservative person, she didn't let that affect how she responded to the wide range of issues that that she had to respond to. Yeah, yeah, there are there are a range. I'm not going to give it away because yeah. I think people should read it for themselves. But yeah. it did remind me that you said that uh, your mother's way of um, connecting with people, you know, because you moved a lot around, mm. moved mm. around a lot during your childhood and yeah. you'd be in a new country or a new state and would need to, you know, build new connections, friendships, mm. and that her way of connecting with people was something that was useful to you coming in as an outsider really in parliament. You weren't, you know, from a faction of a traditional no. party what was it the experience for you coming from a position of not being a, a, politi- a career politician, someone who actually had a life before yeah. politics that was <laughs> fascinating and, yeah. and also, you know, really different and varied? It's, it, it's such an interesting question and um, I, I have found Parliament one of the more difficult places to find my place, even though I've loved every second of it and, you know, as my mum would have insisted upon, I've got involved in everything, you know, I've got involved in lots of friendship groups, um, lots of, I've been involved in a lot of committee work, mm. um, you know, I'm an acting president, I've, you know, as my mum would have made us do, you know, you pick three sports and a, and a craft <laughs> and, you know, that's how you make friends. Yeah. And that that's exactly right, she would... There was no thought in our head that we wouldn't make friends wherever we went, that that was just what she instilled in us. Mm. But when you go to Parliament, it's this really interesting thing, like are they friends or do they want my vote or do they just have to be nice to me because 
I hold a balance of power and I can stop a piece of legislation or ensure it's it's passing. Mm. So it's this very it's the first time in my life that I've actually kind of had difficulty judging judging relationships. Now, you know, I'm I'm an optimistic person, so I like to think that you know, best in people. Think, yeah, well, and that they, <laughs> you know, aren't just being nice. But yeah. um, but it it it's it it does give you that interesting self doubt, and it's probably um, yeah the first time. And I suspect that's for everyone. Like I remember mm-hmm. someone saying to me from a major party that it's not the people in front across the aisle that they worry about; it's the people behind them that they worry about. Yeah. So I think that that kind of viciousness of, of party politics mm. um, creates quite an unstable relationship, rela- unstable relationships. Yeah, and we've seen that play out at the federal level mm. you know, in the number of leadership spills we've seen I know. is phenomenal. Yeah, but a lot of that really seemed to do with either ideology, extreme ideology and matters of opinion or difference Mm. and also around personality and whether, you know, someone was liked or not. Yeah, and let's not forget self-interest. Yes, the probably overriding motivation really. That's right, you know. Uh, you know, I back I back my leader until I don't is basically... Yeah, until later that day or the next day. That's right, that's mm. right. Well, that, that's exactly... So I, I I think this is... It is incredibly unhelpful. It is, you know, I I don't know how we fix this and, and I, I think, you know, political parties really need to consider um, how they create some stability because, you know, you, know, you talk... I was listening to someone from Tony Burke, I think it was, from the Mm. opposition. So what are you guys going to do today? They're going to beat the opposition um, all week about party politics Mm -hmm. and then the the opposition is going to beat them about party politics. We're not going to talk about policy. We're not going to talk about people. Uh, You know, there may be some attempts to get some legislation through, but largely they are going to talk about themselves Mm. for the entire week, which... Which they're getting paid for. Which they're getting paid for. And mm. I don't I don't think it is healthy, you know, to be so obsessed with yourself um, or your own your own level of importance mm. when you're not obsessing about the people that you're there to represent. Exactly. And it reminds me of the fact that when we had that spill, there was legislation to be brought before the House mm. about whether um, a perpetrator of domestic violence could cross-examine uh, the victim in person in court. Yeah. And, and that was something to be discussed. It's still to be discussed this week as well yes. as live exports and that kind of thing. And, you know, you write in your book, particularly at the federal level, mm. very little socially progressive policy has actually passed the parliament yeah. except the marriage equality mm. outcome. That's right. And and I think, you know, we're... With with our new prime minister, who again is um, actively and fervently religious, and this is the third out of five prime ministers mm. that has that is very actively religious. Where you look at the general population, and the last census found that less than nine percent of us would call ourselves actively religious, and that would be going to church more than going to church or a mosque more than once a month. Um, it's yet, a low bar. <laughs> that's right. And yet 25% of our politicians do a daily prayer morning. Mm. Um, so I think our, our, our politicians are not actually in line 
with the people that they represent, and that's why we don't see socially. Pr- uh, we don't see policy that is backed by the people go through. Mm. Uh, you know, seeing the voluntary the debate about whether the ACT and the Northern Territory could have a debate about voluntary assisted dying that 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 bill was lost or that even that motion was lost in in the Senate. And even though they said it was a conscience vote, I suspect that there was a lot of pressure not mm. to support it from that very strong uh, religious element. And it has been strong for quite a while, even at the state level. I mean, mm. there are, you say at the beginning of your book that uh, parts or branches of the Victorian Liberal Party have been taken over by religious yeah. types, those who would have maybe partaken in family first politics That's right. when they were alive. And also um, the Labor Party has a history of having a strong Catholic right, mm-hmm. pro-life mm-hmm. Um, people, particularly the SDA yeah. union, um, which I I think has wavered a little in their influence nowadays, but was very, very strongly influential yeah. uh, in the point that that's why Labor really had didn't support marriage equality for so long. That, that's exactly right, and I think those. Um, and I think this is also what um, is why having member independence or parties like Reason can be effective because we can mm. be a lot more nimble and a lot more agile. So, you know, trying to get a supervised injecting centre or even safe access zones around abortion clinics, even though everyone thinks it's the right thing to do, to get that through the caucus would have been really difficult. And there would have been people in the caucus who said, why would we want to raise the abortion debate again? Um, You know, why would we want to raise, even mention that word (laughs) again? So, you know, those big bayer mouths of of parties, their, their sheer size... It makes them, you know, so difficult to move. And, you know, as we saw on marriage equality, you know, the, the whole of the community had moved on before either Labor or Liberal could could move on. Exactly. And I think some of the issues that your party in the past and currently has mm. been vocal on are very progressive, you know, civil liberty type issues. Yes. Um, th- there is a whole range of them, but I know a lot of it, stems from your experience, like Mm. professionally and personally. Why did you set up the sex party and and why was, I guess, the focus on those key issues that most of the parties don't consider their core focus? Yes, and isn't it interesting um, that as, as it turned out, they became their core focus. So, I mean, I think, look, to be quite honest, we set the party up out of frustration, yeah, and I'm I'm not sure that that is a good reason to do anything. However, I'm very pleased that we did do it. So it was frustration that we could see the community was moving in one direction on social issues and our parliaments were either not moving or were moving in the opposite direction. And so when we went to the first election, it was on marriage equality. It was on a royal commission into religious institutions and and child sex abuse. Mm. Um, It was on internet censorship. And I know it's kind of curious these days, but it was also on the ability for adults to have access to adult computer games. And, you know, oddly, this was a big issue for for some MP, for federal parliament at the time, that that we wouldn't allow adult computer games in it. So those were the first four things that we went 
to the election and, and also around sex education, gender equality, um, assisted dying. And and it's interesting to see so many of those initial policies and campaigns that we took almost not to be elected but to prove that people would vote for mm. those vote on those issues. So I, Dev would call a single issue. I don't think we were single issue, but people actually voted on those issues. Yeah, it really makes me think that perhaps you're a circuit breaker in some regard. Mm. Not only do you have the balance of power, but you're disrupting the yes. current way that things are do, are being done yeah. around social issues. And I think you know we need the. The major parties need to consider this and we, you know, the Wagga Wagga by-election is another excellent example mm. of the fact that the community has really lost faith in, in the major parties. Uh, so that, that that independent voice in there, and, and you look at the upper house in Victoria, there's eight political parties represented there and at least three of them are needed to pass legislation mm. um, or to actually, yeah, three if the Shooters and the Greens supported the same thing, which is unlikely. <laughs> How often does that, that happen? Not, <laughs> not terribly often. In fact, I think the only time they supported it was when, um, uh, the, when the Greens uh, vote with the Liberals um, they'll generally find that the shooters are voting with them as well. Really? Okay. Yeah, so that makes a very odd troika. Yeah. Um, but uh, that that it do, that doesn't happen often. No, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it does, though, point to maybe the value of having parliaments where there is, the government is in the minority and yeah. can't just, you know, ram through everything that is in their election platform. Exactly. And... While I hope that I've been able to um, put forward my arguments arguments eloquently and 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 persuasively, I also know that that the fact that my vote is important to the government in a, does give me a step up in in arguing whether it was for an inquiry into assisted dying or supervised injecting centre or mm. you know safe access zones. It, I do get that that step up with that and I and I hopefully I use that not in a horse trading way but in a responsible way but yes you know without that um the government of the day wouldn't take on those issues because they don't have to mm. um and and also as I said before because it would be very hard for them to get that consensus within their caucus on, on those issues. Yes. And, I mean, you have introduced private members' bills, mm. particularly I'm thinking of the one around uh, abortion clinics. Yes. Preventing people, protesting and intimidating women yeah. who come to those clinics to get yes. a safe abortion. Mm. Is that, would you consider that in your, in terms of your current parliamentary career, was that a really important thing for you to achieve, you know, given that it wasn't, uh, I guess, initiated by the other parties. Yes, it was really important. And and I think it was it was also, like, it was quite a step up for us. You know, we, um, you know, we, it, was, it was in our, you know, first half of our first year and I think it was somewhat that, that optimistic naivety that's like, well, we'll just write a bill, won't we? <laughs> you know, that's, that's what we do. Yeah. Now, I mean, of course, when that bill went up, the the government wouldn't accept my bill 
but they did make a commitment to introduce the le- legislation themselves mm. and and I made sure that the health minister stood on the steps next to me with the cameras going and made that commitment so and I did that we, we did that with Uber as well and we um, also did it with the safe injecting center mm. um, and which I believe has been very successful so far hasn't it's it? been hugely successful and yep. I you know so I think the safe access zones was a really wonderful thing to do and so many of us have had personal experience with that harassment um, uh, uh, with that harassment but the safe injecting center is safe, is actually saving lives yes like it's actually saving lives and it's actually showing one of our most um, disengaged and poorest part of our community that someone cares for them you know, like, I, I don't know if many of the listeners know, but there is now a volunteer dentist in the supervised injecting centre, which, you know, these are people who are largely homeless who would never have had any um, dental health care for years. And just yes. it's those sorts of things that I think are in, in, incredibly important and incredibly helpful to put people back on a, on a path to recovery. Mm. And it's a small thing for Parliament to do, but it has a massive impact yeah, the funding and, and in terms of, I, I think the political will surely would be behind an issue like that where people don't want to have um, drug users on the street potentially overdosing yeah. alone, yeah. Um, you know, not having a place to put their needles. That's right. That's right. And and you've cert- and you certainly feel it there. There is a. I was out. I've, I mean, I go out there most weeks um, because Richmond's in my electorate. But yeah. there is a level of calm. Look, it's not perfect, and it hasn't fixed everything, and and mm. it won't. But it's already bursting at the seams. It's already, um, you know, it it already needs to be enlarged. So it has been, it has been endorsed by the cohort that we were trying to get. This is a cohort that is so hard to access for for health, mm. um, but now we're giving them a door into mental health treatment. We're giving them a door into recovery. Tra- you know addiction treatment we're giving them a door into dental health like it's a yeah it's just um i think this is a, a wonderful thing and 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 i hope that we will be able to see more of these in other parts of of melbourne um where the community wants it and where it's needed mm. now you are a, a upper house member which is quite different in mm. some regards in terms of the size of your electorate <laughs> and who you the people you're representing mm. I mean, you're uh, representing the northern metropolitan district which is a huge span of suburbs when i looked it up on the That's vec right. website mm. how do you engage with your constituents given that you're not only um from a, a, a different party not the major parties yeah. but you're also one of a few who are rep- representing that particular area. That that's right. So, I it the northern metropolitan area encompasses five hundred thousand voters and about five hundred square kilometres, and it's eleven lower house seats. So, and the vast majority of those are held by Labor, and the ones that aren't are held by the Greens. So they. They sort of have that lower house representation where, yeah, it's just me to represent those 500,000. 
I go to the opening of an envelope. Um, <laughs> I, I try and get out and about everywhere in my community as much as I can. I try and connect with with different with different groups, um, and and I love doing that. So yeah. I really enjoy. You know, I was at a a, a launch of a disability. Uh, platform then I was also at a say no to violence group and yeah I get to meet a diverse range of people which like you Amy I mean it's yeah. it's one of the wonderful privileges of the work that we do. I think that's a great word it really is a huge privilege yeah. to meet people in the community you know passionate about a particular issue yep. or topic to them and to learn and absorb their life experiences into yours so that you hopefully are better informed when you're looking at legislation that comes across your desk. Exactly. And it's I know that um, everyone from Pauline Hanson through to Tony Abbott has said it, but you know, it's actually really important to listen you know, yeah. and to go out and listen to people and meet meet different organizations and you and it's and it is so wonderful do when you do that you mm. know what you learn and um and and where you see the gaps that government could could assist in but also where you see that where government shouldn't be involved in um and just letting communities give it, give communities the tools to support themselves and and also enable small businesses to to play their role in our community in a, a more meaningful way yeah that's a really great point and Fiona I would like to raise something which I think is important mm-hmm. um, because you're a woman of many firsts <laughs> because you're a woman yes. because you were born a woman um, and you know you you are like the first woman to create or found her own party um, to then be subsequently elected under that party yes and uh, you wrote, you said in your um, maiden speech <laughs> I really really liked this what you said you said I may be the first former sex worker elected to a parliament anywhere in this country however I am sure that the clients of sex workers have been elected in far greater numbers before me I know it was it, it, it I love hearing it because it just brings me back yeah because I was so nervous giving that inaugural speech and it's because it's you can't speak in parliament until you've given your inaugural speech so it's the first time you actually speak mm. in parliament and I was so nervous doing it but just it it was almost like the room went naked at that time like the number of people who started like scratching and looking at their feet yeah. and getting you know kind of shuffling and um yeah one yeah. of the one of the um attendants at the house afterwards said Fiona that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen in an, in an inaugural speech just the reaction of the room yeah exactly and you do raise the fact that uh that it's a huge proportion of men, mostly men, mm. who you know will attend um, a, a brothel or engage with a yeah. an individual who is offering sex mm. as a work. Yes, um, and and I think that's something that perhaps you know because it's not visible in mm. many ways, it's you know constantly under the surface there, and it's something which you t- you write about in your book often is that you've been an advocate for sex workers and yep. people in the industry in a range of you know particular fields, mm. um, you know in print form, in video form, yeah. um, 
and and that is obviously a really important area to have an advocate who is looking after someone's welfare mm. and health because you know there are other types of workplace occupational yeah. risks in you know that yeah. particular profession as well in terms of your your life experience has that do you think added to your ability to be a successful parliamentarian um probably more than you know the other work that I did, like being a waitress, although I don't think so. I mean, I think it's about um, relationships with people and interacting with people. Now, certainly in sex work, there is an increased level of intimacy in that interaction um, because you're nude. Mm. Uh, and there, and also, you know, I think it's, in, in my opinion, when in, in sex work, quite often because money changes hand, a lot of ego is left at the door. And yep. so this is, um, you know, this becomes quite a, 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 a transparent and, and, and truthful relationship between two people, mm. even though they might have only known each other for five minutes. Um, I, you know, I, I think also we, we still as a society have trouble talking about sex. And, you know, with the advent of technology and where we're going and with, you know, with the increasing isolation of people that are not experiencing that intimacy, whether you're a person with a disability or you're a person who no longer has a partner or doesn't have a partner, um, our ability to find that intimacy in a relationship I think is important and it's something that we need to speak about Mm. and sex needs to be spoken about. You know, it's, it's, I, I, one interviewer on a, you know, sort of mainstream radio station was shocked at how much sex I put in the book. I like, did hear that interview. Yeah, I know, did you? I, <laughs> was, I was like, oh, how salacious is this book? I know. And it's not. It's not. No, it he, really isn't. He, like, he really, yeah, sorry, listeners. I mean, there's a bit of salaciousness. But, but it's it, yeah. quite prudish, I think, his reaction. It was. And it's... You know, and and certainly, look, you know, I mean, the less we know about Barnaby Joyce's sex life, the better, probably. But I do think it's important that we are open and have conversations about sex. And, you know, that deals into sex and relationship education for children. You know, if we want our children to be safe, then we have to give them the words for that. Mm. We have to give them the understanding of what's good and what's not good. And, you know, and when we're dealing with consent and the increasing concerns around sexual violence in our society, you know, the recognition of it, that we, we have to we have to educate our young men and we have to educate our young women. And I think, it, you know, I think sex and relationship education should be compulsory across every school and it should not just be about how to spell fallopian tube, which <laughs> is what I got in my sex ed. Really? It should be about relationships. It should be about pleasure. Mm. And... You know, frankly, for for a lot of us, sex is sex is fun. Yes. Well, I remember my high school. That was education on sex education, and it was here is a range of STIs under a microscope, <laughs> zoomed in by a million times, so you can see just how horrific this thing looks. Don't have sex, kids. Yeah. See you later. And um, and I was like, oh gosh, sex must be pretty bad mm. if that's what the outcome is. That's right. Um, <laughs> which is. <laughs> really disturbing that I think about it now. But you say, you know, we should have sex education much earlier. We should also be openly talking about sex as adults. That's right. 
I just think it's yep. something that is constantly avoided, even, you know, between family members or siblings or, you know, people start going, oh, I don't want to imagine this happening. That's you know, right. I have a aversion to yep. thinking of intimacy. Um, it does represent such a critical part of human fulfilment and relationships. Exactly. I mean, it's really the reason we breathe, you know, from a, from an evolutional yes. perspective. We are here to procreate and we eat and breathe and drink to procreate. Mm. So it is a fundamental part of our being and I think we should we should acknowledge that. And and then that goes into, you know, when I, I kind of, you know, areas that I'm interested in now, which is around our ageing community, you know, um, and I'm interested in loneliness and isolation and all of those things. And the fact that having a double bed in a nursing home is radical, you know, which is crazy. That is you know, crazy. The yeah. fact that, you know, my friend Janice, who I write about in the book, yes. who has cerebral palsy and she's not allowed to close the door of her bedroom. Mm. She's a 50-year-old woman, you know. So, yeah, I think we've... As, as your school did, let's be scared of sex. Yeah. But also this kind of notion that just say no is is an effective way of um, ensuring... Yeah, negotiating. Uh, negotiating and ensuring mm. safety. Mm. You know, we, we're doing the same with drugs. You know, just say no. Yeah. And that, frankly, is not working. Yeah. Fiona, I wish we could talk for another <laughs> hour because there's so much I wanted to cover. But I really want people to read your book and also head along to the event that you're at in Readings Carlton. Yes. Which I think is tomorrow night, isn't it? It is tomorrow. At 6.30. Yeah. And it's free. It's free. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that there are many places left, which is frightening. Because I think just, you know, finishing, one of the weirdest things about this was when I wrote the book, It, it the fact that people would read it was a very abstract um, yeah, idea yeah. and now, you know, <laughs> Now I'm realising that... People are quoting it back to you. That's right, exactly. <laughs> I, know, I was thinking that. I'm like, it must be pretty disturbing yeah. to... It is probably more an intimate process You're just with yourself. That's right. And and certainly Robbie, my partner, mm. um, you know, has... This is, this is a love story. I mean, this is our story as yeah. well. So he was intimately involved in this as well. You know, he's a great editor. And so, you know, he was part of this journey of this last couple of years. So, yeah, so... You know, it's kind of like, right, well, we've done that. And <laughs> I didn't kind of think about, because this is the first time we've ever done anything yeah. like this, I didn't really think about the fact that people, yeah, obviously the you're going to... They're, yeah, they're going <laughs> It's a book. Yeah. People are supposed to read it, And Fiona. it'll have quite a long life. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Thank you so much, Fiona, Thanks, for coming Amy. in. It was really wonderful chatting with yeah, you. Yeah, likewise. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.